Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This week's episode is an audience questions episode. Just before we get into it, one quick announcement about the show is I'm thinking of switching the release date basically all around and having it midweek, probably on Wednesday, as opposed to weekends. I don't really know why it's happened, but it just seems like that's shifted to the release date, what with everything else going on and other stuff that I like to do. So, you know, um, give me feedback if there's, like, a particular day you want it to come out, but, like, that's just sort of seems to be where we've landed, so I guess just build that into your podcast listening schedules going forward. So, this is um, an audience questions episode. I asked for questions on social media. I got some really good ones, actually. I really, these are, like, really, like, like, you could write a college essay on them, like, good questions. So I'm really grateful for that. And then at the end, I go into a little bit more length on an email that I got that um, made an attack on me as, um, said I was uh, anti, an anti-white racist. And this is something I've heard a lot And so I thought about it, you know, I think there's arguments both ways against responding, but I actually just sort of decided I was going to do it, and I sort of take the attack at face value, and I'm like, no, let's just deal with these as ideas, and let me explain why I think they're mistaken. Like I've said a few times, I think we should, you know, communicate why we believe what we believe about race. So I decided to do that, and that made the episode run on a little bit, but I figured I'd just put it all together. So, I had a lot of fun recording this. It's not prepped in the same way as I do my solo ones, but I'm quite forthright um, about a number of things, anywhere from, like, working in non-profit to how I get my interview guests. Um, So this is, like, a, a little bit less of a formal one. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it, and let's get straight to it. This is me answering audience questions. Audience questions. So, I've just got a big list of these in front of me. I'm gonna get through as many as I can, and I haven't, like, prepped this. When I do my solo episodes, I'll often write a script, or at least a script outline. I'm just gonna do these off the cuff, so you're getting my genuine reactions to them, almost like you're interviewing me. And we'll see how many we get through, and we'll see how it goes. So, first question. How can we compare political spectra between different societies when there is no universal spectrum stroke point of reference? That is, what to make of Europeans calling the US a right-wing country, while Americans say France, Germany, and so on are left-wing? Yeah, this is a really great question. And this is going to seem like a bit of a dodge, but my answer is, well, it essentially depends on how you conceptualize what a political spectrum is, or more broadly, what political beliefs are, and what a political ideology is. So regular listeners will know that latter question is sort of a wheelhouse of mine. But just to start with, can we meaningfully say 
that, you know, some European countries are, on the whole, more conservative than the US. I mean, yes, I think so. So if we assume that um, a political spectrum is essentially a line of policy preferences, then there's a lot of um, institutions in Europe and the attitudes that the political parties and the political actors have about them that are considerably to the left of the US. So just to give one example, it's not just like, say, Jeremy Corbyn is more left-wing than Bernie Sanders. He is. I think that's a true statement. But take something like healthcare, right? In the US right now, we're having a debate, essentially, about whether to socialise, for lack of a better word, but to have government regulation and whatever in the provision of healthcare insurance. In the UK, my home country, um, the government directly provides healthcare. You know, for the most part, doctors and nurses are employees of the NHS, which is to say employees of the state. So healthcare is provided by the government in the same way that, say, police or roads are. And that's actually my preferred option for um, healthcare. Now, that isn't even a political... That's not even on the table in the US. You know, what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are talking about is the government coming in to provide health insurance. Um, and if you notice, not only do we, you know, is the institutional reality different in the UK, but people's attitudes and beliefs about it are different. So almost all conservative, mainstream conservative politicians in the UK will support the NHS. The furthest they'll go is to maybe outsource certain aspects of it, certain parts of it, to private companies. So British conservatives, by and large, endorse a position that is considerably to the left of Bernie Sanders. So that's one way that you could look at it. You could say, well, overall, you know, what is the sort of political centre of gravity? What are the institutions? What do the main actors say about the institutions? And if you take that sort of 101 view of political spectra, that's a way in which the assertion that Europe... Um, I mean, even just, say, European healthcare and the debates and ideas we have about that is significantly to the left of the US, and it'll be a bit different depending on the issue. And another way you could look at it, and I think this might be more helpful, is instead of saying in absolute terms, you know, what are the policies are, look at the direction of change. So even though British conservatives broadly support the NHS, they still would... Does does it make sense, you know, then to say that they're more left-wing than Bernie Sanders, that Boris Johnson is more left-wing than Bernie Sanders? That seems like a weird statement, right? So maybe it's direction of change. Maybe it's like, you know, from a starting point of the NHS, the um, conservatives in the UK want to take it in a more private direction. And then from a starting point of whatever the frack we have now in the US, um, Democrats want to take it in a more socialised direction, say. That's another way you could look at it. You could look at political spectrum relative to existing institutional arrangements rather than simply what institutional arrangements are being proposed. Even then... 
you know, this does get into the question of what is an ideology, because there is a sense in which, you know, there's plenty of um, conservative politicians in the UK, I think, who are fine with the NHS. They don't even want to try and privatise it, like they like it, they're good with it, you know, this is something they pretty much support, yet nonetheless they are conservatives, and Bernie Sanders is nonetheless a democratic socialist, even though, you know, on paper it seems like his positions are considerably to the right of the conservatives, so what's going on here? Well, this goes to the point about do we view political ideologies as a sort of um, composite set of policy preferences, which maybe can or maybe can't be mapped to a single scale or a two-dimensional graph or whatever, or do we view them as an underlying set of values? Do we view political ideologies as a set of claims about what is just, what is right, what are the optimal conditions for human flourishing, how can societies change and evolve? And if you view them in that latter sense, wherein conservatism is a set of claims about the individual, about individual responsibility, about the limitations on what sort of societal change is possible, well, then it does make sense to call um, British conservatives conservative, even though that underlying cluster of values has attached itself to quite different policy preferences than it has in the US. And I think that actually is the right way to look at it. And I think if you look over time, the underlying values tend to be more stable than the policy preferences they attach themselves to. So, you know, conservatives in the UK have supported and opposed and then supported and opposed again nationalised healthcare. You know, their relationship even to quite fundamental things like democracy has changed. The relationship of, you know, the big main ideologies of, like, liberalism, socialism, conservatism um, has switched and switched back again with respect to things like international trade, but the underlying values have stayed consistent. And then if you look at it in terms of underlying values, I think you do also get a clearer picture of the relative salience of those ideologies in different countries. I think if you're looking at underlying values, it's very, very clear, both in the political system and just in the population, that conservative conservatism runs broader and deeper in the US than it does in the UK and certainly many other European countries. So, that would be my first pass at that, is if you want to say, just to go back to the question, how can we compare political spectra between different societies? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by political spectra, and the question's quite right that there's no universal point of reference, but that's not just a challenge in thinking about political spectra between societies, that's a challenge in thinking about political spectra in general. And one of the things I'd like to see from political science and political theory, and just all of us actually when we talk about politics, is to be a bit more self-conscious about what we mean by a political spectrum when we invoke it. Because what you understand it to mean will change what answer you get. 
And for more on this, I recommend my episode called What is Ideology, where I talk to two scholars about just that question. So that's sort of my first pass at that. Okay, next question. I'm not sure this is in the scope of what you want to talk about, but it's something I've been wondering. If someone is looking to get more actively involved in social justice, organising, agitation, volunteering, do you have any advice or recommendations on how to do so? Um, no, this is exactly within the scope of things that I like to talk about. And for sort of a, a broader take on this, I'll recommend my interviews with Mary Frances Berry, the former chairwoman of the US Civil Rights Commission, and Zephyr Teachell, who is... Um, an organiser, anti-corruption campaigner, former congressional and gubernatorial candidate. Um, and I go into sort of the question of, like, living your values, if you want to call it that, with them. And this is something I'm more than happy to give you some advice on. I've spent 10 years doing various jobs from the top to the bottom of social justice, or well, maybe not the top, but from at least the middle <laughs> to the bottom of... Um, social justice organisations, I've done a lot of volunteering. I guess I'll give you the advice that other people won't, in that I'll give you the negative advice. Now, don't get me wrong, I think organising and agitating and volunteering, as you put it, is tremendously important. I'm really glad it's something that you're considering doing. I encourage you to do it, and I wish you all the luck in the world with doing so. Um, I'll give you the negative advice, and I'll sort of tell you what to avoid, which isn't what people say. When people talk about this, it's all about, yeah, get involved, give your time, you know, join the cause, because, you know, we are so desperately in need of money and volunteers and support and whatever, that it's all just about shoveling as many people in as possible. But I, I'd urge two points of caution, in that the people who make up social justice organisations, the people who staff and lead them and structure them, are just people, with all of the fallibilities that the people who make up any organisation do. When it comes to sort of progressive organisations who you might volunteer and work for, I would say there's broadly two pitfalls that you want to avoid. The two are as follows. Number one, I would call do-nothing non-profits, who in other words, you know, when people are giving money to a non-profit, they don't necessarily have a particularly clear idea on how they spend it, and there are unfortunately quite a lot of non-profits who exist to continue existing. It's very easy to say something like, we're fighting for climate change or something, but really what you do is you raise money to have people on staff, essentially. The other is governance. A lot of corp of non-profits I think of as, like, corporate non-profits. They're institutional hierarchies in the same way as, like, working for a bank is, and they involve all of the standard abuses of power that come with having a comparatively small number of people in charge in a situation where there's no oversight. That usually only ends in one thing. And I'm not naming names for either of those, either the do-nothing non-profits or the corporate non-profits, but they both exist. And, 
you know, if you look in the news, I talked about this a little bit with Peter Singer, a lot of the big progressive non-profits have had scandals to do with workplace sexual harassment, workplace bullying, abuse of power, abuse of funds. It's depressingly common. So I'm going to give you a few tips, basically for avoiding giving your blood, sweat and tears to an organisation that either won't make good use of them because they don't really do anything, or an organisation that you shouldn't really want to be a part of because they're actually not living their values. And at the end of the day, I think you either believe in progressive ideals or you don't. And if you say you believe in them, but 99% of the time you're devoting your energy and loyalty towards a fairly oppressive top-down structure that abuses and underpays and tolerates harassment and so on, you're not really a progressive in any meaningful sense. You're just claiming to be one, I think. Now, I don't mean to say all non-profit and volunteer and advocacy and organising is like that. It absolutely isn't, and that's why I started this answer by saying, you know, please do please do volunteer and get involved. What I want to stress, though, is it's, um, it's, it's your time, and there's a lot of people who need it and want it. You know, wherever you are, even if you're not, like, in a big city or something, there'll be dozens. I mean, I'm in New York, so there's literally thousands of organisations, from political campaigns to just small college protests, all the way up to, like, big institutional left campaigning organisations. There's just a plethora of things for which you can volunteer. So if you don't get the right feel from one particular volunteering opportunity, move on and do something else. Remember that, you know, you are in complete control of this. And my first bit of advice is be a bit discerning. You know, you're only ever going to be giving well, however many hours a week that you think you can give to volunteering, but you're only ever going to be giving that amount. You know, make it count for as much as you can. So here's my advice. First, for avoiding do-nothing organisations, look at specifics. If someone says, we're fighting against Trump or we're fighting against climate change, avoid that. I mean, at least avoid it insofar as it can't be cashed out in terms of, like, we fed this many homeless people. It doesn't have to be direct aid if it's a campaigning organisation. Okay, what protests have you organised? What rallies? How many senators or congressmen do you talk to? Right? Try and get, you know, within, not like in general, not like in the last ten years, in the last two months, what sort of specific actions have you been involved in? And if an organisation doesn't have an answer to that question, that's not something you should be giving your money or your unpaid labour towards. Next one is corporate non-profits. Now, I don't mean to say that anything that has an institutional structure is to be avoided. You know, if you look at something like Occupy Wall Street, which I think was very well-intentioned, it, I think, precisely failed because it didn't ever really develop a coherent internal structure. But I would say try and find a middle ground. Try and... Um, Try and give your time and energy to organisations that are collaborative and participatory. Um, try 
to give your time and energy, even if you're just volunteering, to organizations that treat their employees well. Look specifically for um, places where the campaign staff are unionized. Um, look, do a bit of research. If you Google a lot of the big progressive name brand nonprofits, you'll see that they have um, scandals um, about how they treat their employees and how they allow um, all sorts of harassment and so on. I would avoid working for anyone who has one of those scandals. Um, also, here's a tip. Just go, before you volunteer for any organization, um, have a quick look on their Glassdoor page and just see how former employees and interns and volunteers talk about them. And, you know, maybe one bad review shouldn't put you off. But if you're consistently seeing that people feel like they're being underpaid, overworked, forced to tolerate harassment, not listened to, if you're consistently seeing Glassdoor reviews that say they don't really believe in any of this, it's just like an organisation to hustle checks out of liberals, don't work for them, right? So... Those are some things to avoid. On the positive front, do something you believe in, right? A lot of people sort of feel like, oh, there's so many important issues. Should I be giving my energy to climate change? Should I be giving my energy to LGBTQIA rights? Should I, you know, dot, 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 right? Um, that's a really great question, and it's a really hard one to answer. But look, at the end of the day, it's better to do something than nothing. And if you are going to be doing something, you're probably going to be doing it more effectively, and you're probably going to be able to continue doing it in a more sustainable way if you do something that personally speaks to you, that you're passionate about. So I would recommend, like, make a shortlist, do a little bit of research on the various groups and organizations you might be considering volunteering for, and then give them a go, right? And then the final point is, yes, you're volunteering, but, like, you're doing something for them. If Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that, like, what you'll end up doing when you're volunteering will necessarily be super high level. You might end up doing something quite mundane, like stuffing envelopes or delivering leaflets or collecting petition signatures or something like that, right? But if the people you end up volunteering with aren't excited to have you, if they don't make an effort to inspire you and remind you what you're doing is important, then give that free labor to someone else who can use it more. Because if people don't value volunteers, don't don't feed the beast. You know what I mean? Um, and that that sort of goes for everything, be it a political campaign, be it um, a, a sort of local group, be it a big, you know, national or international organization. If you get the feeling that they're not doing anything or not treating their people well, don't give them your labor because we have to, you know, there's only so many people who volunteer or give money or agitate or whatever. Um, we have to make sure that that's going to the right people. So that might have been a bit of a downer response, but those are the pitfalls. And I hope that's some like useful, specific, concrete advice for how to make sure that if you are giving your time, you're enjoying it and it's having the most consequence in the world. Okay, next question. 
Has any, I, I, I love this question, by the way. Has anyone ever refused to be interviewed, and why? I, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to name names with this one. I think it would be um, very, very classless to um, talk trash about people or to reveal details of private um, email conversations. So I won't do that. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll say a few things about this. Um, yes, to answer the question, uh, plenty of people have declined to be uh, interviewed, which is fine. Um, certainly no one owes me their time or anything like that. Probably the most common reason is just a pretty boring, I don't have time, which I just take as a sort of generic, polite refusal, which is absolutely fine. I've had one person say they don't like um, interview-based podcasts, which is, you know, fair enough. You know, sure, it's not for everyone, and if you don't like the medium, then, you know, I guess it doesn't make a huge amount of sense for you to do it. I sort of, you know, I talk, I, I've talked a bit about, like, how I used to work in non-profit, um, I've done a lot of fundraising um, of various different kinds, um, anywhere from, like, I've worked as a bloody street canvasser to, like, um, I've managed fundraising departments to, like, I've put together emails and uh, fundraising brochures and so on. I've, I've sort of done the spectrum there. And I kind of think about getting guests in, in, in a similar sort of way to um, how I think about fundraising. In the, that, that might sound slightly cynical, but here's, here's what I mean by it. My attitude towards fundraising is there's no harm in making the ask, right? Like, you, as long as you do it politely, you can ask anybody for anything. Um, and then as soon as they say no, it's over. Um, I think any fundraiser who continues after a hard no is like not doing their job very well, they're not going to accomplish anything by it, and they're just going to piss people off, right? Um, but then if someone gives a maybe, you can sort of keep going and in a nice way sort of see if you can address um, an underlying concern there. So that's how, sort of how I approach getting guests, is I've got no shame. I'll, I'll, I, I've asked all sorts of people on. I've asked people on who are like you know, like, national figures and stuff, and, like, you'll see by, like, the guests I do get on, like, occasionally it lands, like, you know, sometimes people who are, like, I mean, again, I, like, I'm not trying to avoid saying specific names, but just look at the guests I have on, sometimes people I get on are, like, have way bigger followings than I do, or, like, have a sort of, like, academic prestige and level of respect for what they've accomplished as a scholar that's just, like, out of the stratosphere. Um, and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll come on. And one of the things I've found, and this is true with fundraising as well, with fundraising, you, you there's not one typical reaction. Like, when you're like, hey, can you give money to a charity? Some people are like, absolutely not. Some people are like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, of course. And then there's sort of like anything and everything in between. Some people have like minor concerns. Some people have huge elaborate concerns. And, you know, they're all over the shop. Um, and yet they all think, 
that their response is representative. <laughs> um, and it's the exact same with trying to get guests. Some people just, like, stone-ignore you and, like, you know, whatever, fine, right? Like, I don't think I'm owed anyone's response, much less their time. Some people just get back, like, in five minutes and like, yeah, I'd love to. And then some people, like, have, like, endless sort of questions about it and, like, which I'm happy to answer, right? Like, I asked them to do something. Um, but what I find funny is if I think about, like, the people I would ask on a spectrum from maybe, like, very well-known to, like, less well-known, because I don't just go for, like, super high-profile people. I'll sometimes just, like, read someone's book and be like, I want to interview that person. Um, and again, I'm not, like, calling out any specific guest here. But what I do notice is there's precisely zero correlation between how difficult someone is to get on and how high-profile they are. Like, sometimes, like, super high-profile people are just like, yeah, cool, I'll do it. And then sometimes people who, like, you know, maybe don't have a huge following or a huge academic rep are, like, really, like, cagey about it. And, and vice versa, there's, like, no rhyme or reason to it. It's such a bizarre, like, space to be in. With all that said, though, I do want to close that, because this is just Toby talking trash, this episode. This is like, so what don't you like about non-profits? What, like, dish the dirt on the people you interview. Um, with that said, I will say, when it comes to academics specifically, the vast majority say yes. Or say yes after, like, you know, you work out, like, oh, I don't really have much time, could we do it next month? That sort of thing, right? Um, the vast majority, I would say, like, 80% and upwards of academics say yes. Academics are great. Like, academics will just give you an hour of their time for free for, like, no other purpose in that they just are really excited by their topic and they want there to be more knowledge in the world. So I should close that question with saying, like, academics are, like, very good about these sorts of asks and, like, they're very receptive to them, and I'm very, very grateful for that. You know, this podcast would not have ever got off the ground if academics weren't willing to give me their time for free, so I should end by saying that. When it comes to, like, sort of public figures, that's a bit more hit and miss, and that's when you get into this thing I'm talking about where, like, you really, you're just rolling the dice, you really, if you're reaching out to someone cold, you could get anything from, like, um, no response, bizarre convoluted response, to, like, immediate yes. Like, you really just don't know. But again, like, as a professional fundraiser, the sort of the really you just don't know doesn't scare me, um, because it's like, well, you might as well give it a go. Like, you've got to be polite, you've got to be respectful, you've got to, you know, if someone says no, yeah, no worries, thank you for getting back to me. But, like, if you're just rolling the dice, then you might as well roll them, if that makes sense, and that's sort of been my attitude. And if anyone is thinking about doing, like, their own interviewing podcast, I would say, no, there's absolutely no harm in asking people, but there's a responsibility on your side to make sure that you make right on that commitment. You know, make sure that if you're saying you'll be there a certain time for them, you'd better be there, right? Make sure you're not jerking them around, make sure you read their book in advance, make sure you structure your inter your questions well. Like, if someone who's, like, 
you know, one of the name brand academics in, like, the world on a topic is giving you an hour of their time, you make the most of that time. And, like, academics will only do it, they, they will do it, and they will give you their time for free, which is fantastic, but they'll only do it if they feel like you're sort of making an equivalent commitment, if that makes sense. So it, it is like, it, it's, yes, they'll, they, they will do it, but you have to, it's a two-way street. So anyway, that's a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at how the uh, sort of podcast comes together. One, one final point, just while I'm on this, is... I'd say, like, um, there's, like, two things that let me book really good guests for this show. One is we sort of have um, a good reputation in the academic community, to the extent that we're known, that is. Um, Toby, here we go, using the royal we to refer to the podcast like I'm bloody Elizabethan monarch or something. You know, we are not amused. No, that's Victoria, isn't it? Um, but anyway, like, it has, it like... Um, it has a fairly good reputation, and, like, reasonably early on in the show, um, Philip Pettit said it was the best interview he'd ever done, and I was like, yo, can I use that as a promo quote? And he was like, sure. And so I, I, um, I, like, have that as part of my marketing, along with some stuff other people have said, and that just gave us a sort of, like, legitimacy that people know if they come on, it'll be a serious interview, you know? Um, the other is just audience growth. Now, maybe not quite as much with academics, but certainly with, like, the sort of celebrity academics, or, like, the very high-profile academics, or, like, public figures, having a bit of a following helps. If people, like, go and they look at me on Twitter, and they're like, oh, he's got a few thousand followers, it's not like... I think when I was asking people to come on, and I had, like, 12 Twitter followers, there was a little bit more caution about, like, wait, what am I doing again? Um, whereas now that, like, it's a little bit of a thing, not huge, but, like, a little bit of a thing, people can kind of look at it and go, like, oh, yeah, it's a thing, some famous people have been on. So, you know, this is just going to segue into an appeal to the audience, but anything you can do to help us grow the audience, that makes the show better directly, because it gives me more clout when I'm reaching out to guests. So if, you know, you want me to be able to get bigger and bigger, and like, like, you know, God help me, I would love to get, like, Elizabeth Warren or something on the podcast, right? We're not there yet. But, like, my ability to make those sorts of asks is predicated on the sort of following I have. So if you want the show to be able to, you know, get better and better and book some really, like, big-name people, um, please keep sharing our updates. Please, you know, forward and recommend to friends. A lot of people who I sort of converse with, who sponsor us, whatever, are like, oh, yeah, my friend sent it to me and said they'd like it. So anything you can do like that is both, like, one, I would just... I told you I was a fundraiser, right? Like, um... I'm I'm just so shameless about making these these sorts of asks. But like yeah, one is just like nice and it's a cool thing to do and it doesn't cost you anything and like, you know, I appreciate it. But two, like doing it like will, you know, deliver you a better product, at least in the medium to long run. So like if you, you know, enjoy the show and you're like, ooh, I wish you could get like that sort of next level of people on, then whatever you can do you know, just small actions like sharing, forwarding, recommending, stuff like that, um, that does sort of empower me to then um, make these sorts of asks. 
So that's more than it's needed. Oh, the final bit of gossip I'll share. This is just me talking shit this episode. Um, whatever. You got two on Popper versus Adorno, and that nearly fucking killed me. So you can listen to me gripe. Um, the other thing I'll say is the only people I've ever had back out of an interview. I'm not going to name them, but they're all sort of IDW, Intellectual Dark Web Associated. Because, like, I'll talk to anyone. I'm sort of a bit leery to have, like, overt bigots on, just because, like, I kind of don't want to. But, like, I'll talk to centre-right people. I had a perfectly lovely exchange with Glenn Lowry. Actually, I enjoyed that a lot, and I'm, I was really glad I had him on. Um, but I've had this thing where, like, IDW people, and again, I won't name them, but it's the same pattern of, like... I reach out, they immediately say yes, like, same day, and then, like, I never hear from them again. I send a follow-up email or two, and it's just, like, radio silence. And so I'm wondering if they're, like, they're all grifters, and so they're like, ooh, interview, yes, exposure, I'll do that. But then they, like, look at it and they're like, what is this? Ooh, wait, he's a progressive critic of the IDW. Nope, not doing that. So I don't know. But apparently that's not uncommon. I've talked to a few other podcasters, and all of this is, like, private, so I can't, I shouldn't really, like, say who, but who do a sort of similar sort of show to me, um, you know, they interview people and whatnot, and apparently that's a really common theme, like, that's happened to quite a few other people, so that's kind of like a pattern, which does sort of speak to just kind of how pathetic they are quite frankly, that, like, I'm a, I'm a lovely interviewer, and, like, but, like, if I'm, the, the, the mere thought that they might get a challenging question is, like, they won't do it, so, so much for free speech and intellectual debate and the, the, the rigorous exchange of ideas and all that, it's kind of a bit of a sham. Anyway, let's get to the next question. Um, Paul Phil Pod, my, my Twitter handle, sorry, if your account of political discourse is as frequently centred around the struggle over the meaning of essentially contestable terms, how do you account for translated or cross-language political debate? To be specific, recently I've been reading Plato's Republic. Again, a complicated term to translate, yes it is, in English translation, and obviously a significant component of that text is around the nature and utility of, um, God, Greek word, diosun. But there's a certain subtlety in trying to understand what any sensible author is naturally forced to pick one translation. For instance, the claim that justice is the advantage of the stronger feels to an English speaker very different to the claim that civility is the advantage of the stronger. Um, incidentally, I'd love to hear an episode on Plato or Aristotle's political philosophy, if that's something you have any interest in. Um, well, to answer the last question first, yeah, I've been meaning to do... I'll be honest, I know Plato a lot better than I know Aristotle, so if I did Aristotle, I'd have to interview someone on it. Whereas Plato... Plato, I actually... This is, um, British education system for you. I once did an entire term in university just on Plato's Republic, and I have some old essays on it that were graded high first, so I could sort of revisit those and do a solo episode, um, or I could have guests on or whatever. I've been meaning to do Plato. Aristotle I don't know as well, but I'd more than happily have someone, which is a, a failing given how consequential and beloved he is. 
I'm actually not such an Aristotle fan. Uh, I, I joked with Orlando Patterson that I, I find him boring compared to Plato. Anyway, so that's an aside. I, I, I do mean to talk about those. Now, with regards to the sort of cross-language thing, I guess if we want to go really into the weeds with this, so, you know, how do we think about the battle over essentially contested terms? The first point to make, and this is kind of like, this is like a technical point, but strictly speaking, we're not talking about the battle over the meaning of words, we're talking about the battle over the structure of concepts, and words are the mechanism or the signifier through which that is expressed. Now, it will sometimes be the case that the same concept exists in different languages, albeit with a different word, and there's two reasons that that would be the case. Either um, that those languages have a common root language, or there's a common root to the etymology, or cross-cultural exchange. So, to take an example, uh, freedom, liberty. I have a whole three-part series with Orlando Patterson on just this, so to get the full story, go and check that out. I really, really love to doing that interview series. But essentially, the idea of freedom will be in most... Um, uh, sort of quote-unquote Western languages, because they have a common root in Latin. Even non-Romance languages, um, like English, have um, Latin roots. So the sort of um, freedom as a value exists in Western thought, but it didn't exist in non-Western cultures prior to contact with the West. So to the extent that it does now, they've had to sort of uh, bastardize another word which they used to have, which most commonly in Asian languages was licentiousness, now has been given a new meaning, it's been attached to this new concept. So that concept had to essentially be imported into non-Western languages. But then, of course, it's more complicated than that, because the meaning given to these terms is, is by what other concepts they're most closely associated with, and the way different concepts and different words pull together is different in different languages. So even if there's a common root or a, a concept that's been imported, then there might still be subtle differences of meaning across the linguistic divide. I think it's entirely possible that, um, and in fact probably inevitable, that specific ideological claims will mutate in meaning through the process of translation. It's also possible, and I discussed this a little bit with the questioner, that the, the relationship of corresponding words between languages may be contestable. So in other words, you know, what is the best translation of a particular arrangement of essentially contestable concepts is in itself something that's contestable, right, if you really want sort of a head fuck on this. But then, you know, how can we, to sort of bite the bullet on this question, the idea of, like, how can we convey, like, these essentially contestable claims across languages the, I, you know, this is a really great question, and I, I haven't put enough thought into this, and I don't have a full theory of this, and I think this there's a book waiting to be written by someone who, like, not me, but, like, someone who's multilingual and really gets the nuances of translation about, like, how 
going between languages affects and changes ideology. You know, I haven't done the work on that. I'm not aware of anyone who's done the work on that, but there's there's a great research project in that. But, like, I think imperfectly, and sometimes not at all, has to be the answer, right? So sometimes you do have the same concept, albeit with, you know, a different verbal signifier to it. But, you know, that can exist in the same language, so a lot of people use liberty and freedom interchangeably. They're different mouth noises, but they signify the same concept. Even then, there might be um, uh, sort of subtle alterations in meaning, but I think, you know, both in English and French, you can have positive and negative liberty, or freedom as non-domination, or freedom as autonomy. There might be very subtle shifts around the edges, but I think broadly, we're using different words for the same concepts. Um, it gets a little bit harder when it's an imported concept, but even then, you can still sort of have meaningful, albeit sort of imperfect, ideological communication. I think, though, you know, the questioner talked about the ancient world. I think that's where it gets harder, and I think when you're looking at when you when you're doing this sort of ideological exchange between languages that either haven't had much cultural exchange between them or are separated by like a long span of time then you get to points where there may not be a direct analog to the concept so there's a lot of concepts that we use today that do not exist in ancient Greek thought. So let me ask you a question, right? We started this with Aristotle. What does Aristotle tell us about the nature of the state? It's, it's a very easy answer. He doesn't tell us anything about the nature of the state, because the state wasn't a concept that existed for him. He tells us a lot about the nature of the polis, which is a concept that doesn't exist for us, and they're not the same. They're not the same thing. So what is a polis? It's the root word of politics, right? Politics means concerning the polis. Polis is like small autarkic community. And again, the, the question raised the role of um, justice. That's not the same thing for him as it is for us. And this is something I talked about with Dale Martin, is... He said, and I've come to accept this as true, you can't talk about the ancient world without anachronism, but there's better and worse anachronisms. In some sense, these concepts, arete, which is horribly translated as virtue, I think is better talked about as masculine excellence, is another one, but they are in a sense fundamentally lost to us. We're never going to fully get into their heads, but there are better and worse ways of approximating and cashing out some of their fundamental core moral concepts that we simply no longer have. And it's also like, I think you want to get away from thinking about concepts as like word meaning, as if like the meaning of a concept is like a particular sentence that explains the word. It's not. It's a patterning. It's, it often involves elements of emotion and visualization. So, for instance, I always make this point. When um, progressives visualize progress, they visualize it as an ascent, 
justice is the light at the top of a staircase that we climb, progress is the line on the graph going up, whereas conservatives and socialists don't visualise process that way. And it may be subconscious, but there's um, a much more dynamic element to what that concept is than merely just a sort of word definition of it. And in some ways, when we're looking at these sort of lost concepts, people are feeling or visualizing something that we're not and we don't have access to. Let me give you what I think is the most striking example of this. It's not an essentially contestable concept, or like, I'd have to think about if it is, I don't think it is. It's actually a medical term, is pneuma. And again, I got this from Dale Martin. Pneuma is a substance. Um, when you breathe in and the air goes to your body, that's pneuma. But also when your brain sends signals for your limbs to move, that's pneuma. Pneumatic, right? Why is this interesting? It's because Paul tells us in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 that the body that Jesus came back to us with and the body we will get when we're resurrected is a physical body, but it's a body made of pneuma, the stuff of pneuma. And what does that mean? So you get this word that the resurrected body is a pneumatic body. Um, well, one anachronism is to use the word spiritual. Now, that's a bad anachronism. It doesn't get at, because when, what, what do you, and again, notice something, it's also about the way you feel and what you visualize as a, as, as not merely formal meaning. So when you visualize spiritual, what are you visualizing? You're sort of, you're basically thinking about like a ghost, right? Like that's what you're thinking of. And is that the right, is that what Paul was visualizing when he talked about a pneumatic body? Almost certainly not. Remember, he tells us the pneumatic body is something that will grow out of our bodies in the same way that a flower grows out of a seed. It's, it's distinct but contiguous and still physical. Um, so Dale Martin says, you know, try and imagine a body made just of air and electricity, a body of oxygen and lightning. And that matches how the pneumatic body is described in ways that are strongly evocative of flashing lights. Isn't this stuff so fun? You blame Dale Martin for me nerding out on the Bible. But so, so, so here's the point I'm trying to track. A body of electricity and lightning gets you closer, but are you visualising the same thing that they visualised? Almost certainly not. Like, like, they had this idea, this category of pneuma, which was something that they thought about and was just sort of part of how they described and interpreted the world that we don't have, and that's now sort of lost to us. And there's a mental picture that must have been in the head of Paul and the churches that he wrote to that we just no longer have. And there's merely better and worse approximations of something that we're never actually going to picture. And, and, and so go to something like arete, you know, virtue, honour, manly excellence. There's better and worse translations of that, which, yes, are contestable. But 
It seems to me like the ancient Greeks were feeling something, or visualizing something, which was shared, and they could, through the mouth noise of arete, evoke in others, that we now no longer have. And I think people want there to be a neater answer to it than that. They want there to be some way that we can really get in their heads. And you're, you're, you're all, and there's better and worse ways of doing that. But I don't think there's going to be a final destination to that journey. So to answer the question then, um, imperfectly and sometimes it's not possible. That's sort of my thinking on that at this point, which is still a work in progress. I appreciate the question. And I think in general, the sort of state of our knowledge there is a work in process, progress. And I think that's something like someone who knew a lot more about languages than I do could do some really good scholarly work on. Okay, so this is going to be the last question, because I might take a little bit more time with this. And I was sort of deciding if I was going to do this, but I've heard it enough that I think I'm going to give it a go. So one thing, dear listeners, you should know is that I quite regularly get accused of being an anti-white racist. So, like, I'm prejudiced against white people essentially. And I think this is just a consequence of having talked publicly about race quite a lot. And if you have any sort of, like, left-of-centre take on it, you you get sort of accused of, like, reverse racism. Um, And I'm not saying this to complain, necessarily, by the way. Like, if you put your views out there, they're going to get attacked, and I don't necessarily buy that the attacks have to be uncivil or whatever. And I always sort of, like, ponder, is this worth responding to? But I've heard it enough now. And I have sort of said recently, like, at the end of the day, like, liberals should communicate, not just that we believe certain things about, like, racial equality, but why? And, like, I've posited, like, I'm fine with reparations or whatever. Um, And this is, like, quite upsetting to a lot of people. And, like, I'm not sure what I'm going to say is necessarily going to convince anyone on the other side. Maybe it will. I don't rule that out. But, like, I don't know. I I did just do this big spiel in my Mill versus Rawls one about, like, you know, stand up and defend your ideas. So I'll just posit, this is just me, you know, defending myself from criticism. These are my views. I'm not speaking for anyone else here. I'll also say that, you know, I'm engaging in this discourse at a, at one level, which is the sort of um, intellectually podcast, sort of slightly self-masturbatory level. Um, this isn't necessarily how I'd recommend liberals talk about race if you you know, go on CNN and you have a 14-second soundbite. That's a very different form of communication. Um, So with all of that throat-clearing in in mind, let's just go to it. So this is an email I got recently, and um, I, um, I did ask the permission of the sender if I could read a little bit of it um, on this episode in order to... Um, 
you know, just just give it as a starting point to give some of my views. But this is a common attack. Like I've I've heard this a lot in more or less articulate forms, and I will say this one does seem to be, you know, at least on the more articulate end of them. Um, so. Hello, you recommend sending outbursts and other comments to your email, so here it is. Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm a leftist, but I have conservative... T I'm just reading from the email here. I'm a leftist, but I have conservative tendencies. I tried listening to your show because of my religious and philosophical interests. A few of your episodes made me depressed, though. I find your world picture to be anti-white and racist. Okay. Um, in one podcast... You discussed integration with a guest. Um, I think he's referencing the Ryan Enos interview here. Um, I liked the first part and how you said Americans do a good job of integrating Muslim immigrants. That's how immigration should work, I might add. Well-educated, well-off foreigners coming and assimilating and putting down roots where their children either water down their home culture or jettison it. That's how immigration ought to work. Um... So, I mean, I might quibble with some of the language there, but, you know, sure, we're agreed on a positive picture of um, immigration. I mean, I'll quibble a tiny bit. I don't think it necessarily has to be only well-educated and well-off foreigners coming here, and I don't think those are the only people who can successfully assimilate, and I think we've seen that time and time again actually. So that's a, that'll be my quibble with that bit, but, you know, fair enough. Um, next bit. But in the second part, when you were discussing race, this made me upset. You have such a low of the state of African Americans today, and you posit some drastic solution. Actually, let's just pause that. If you're talking about reparations, I actually don't view this as especially a drastic solution. So here's just some quick back of the envelope math. The wealth gap between black and white families is about $100,000. Um, let's say reparations, you know, the goal was to take a chunk out of that, either just close it completely, or maybe say take half of it off. So then the payment per family would be, I don't know, somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000. That's sort of what I have in mind. I mean, other people have done the math differently and have other ideas, right? That's sort of what I have in mind when I talk about reparations. So how much would that cost nationally to do that for everyone who can... Um, trace their descent back to slavery, or everyone who, you know, was excluded from the means of generating wealth because of, like, redlining and stuff and segregation. Um, my math puts it at maybe $2 trillion to maybe, like, 3 or 4 on the higher end, depending on how generous and extensive you wanted to be. That's not nothing, but it is also an amount of money that, I mean, keep in mind, like, our annual budget deficit is half a trillion dollars. Like, we, regu we, we the, the U.S. federal government overruns its revenues by half a trillion dollars a year as a matter of course. Um, the Obama stimulus was over a trillion dollars. The bailout for the banks was almost a trillion dollars. 
um, the Bush tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts are all multi-trillion dollar expenses. Uh, I think the Iraq war is like a three or four trillion. And all of those things we just put straight on the credit card. Like, I think our total national debt is approaching 30 trillion dollars now. I didn't look it up in advance, I'm just speaking off the cuff. But like, two trillion dollars is just something we can put on the credit card. I don't think we should do it lightly, but like, when I'm thinking about reparations, like in my head, I'm thinking about a total spend that's sort of equivalent to like tax cuts to the rich or like an economic bailout or a foreign intervention. And I think if you sort of assess it in that ball game of like what, you know, is this something that like is at least an equivalent priority to like bringing the corporate tax rate down? Like yeah, I mean, I think that's a hurdle the argument can clear. Now, I think if you're thinking about reparations as, like, white people have to significantly give up, uh, like, a lot of their wealth or pay significantly higher taxes, then I would agree it becomes more problematic. Um, but if it's just sort of, like, within our power to do, like, there's part of me that almost just wants to say, well, why not? You know what I mean? Okay, so then that, that um, let, let, let's... I, I know that was quite a long one, but I do just want to make that point. I think opponents of reparations want to make um, it seem like a much bigger deal than I think it necessarily is. I don't know, that's just... I'm not claiming I have the final answer to what we should do, but that's, that's kind of like what I'm visualising. Um, so anyway... You have such a low state of African Americans today, and you posit some drastic solution. You also impute white people with collective crimes and collective responsibility, and you bring up the cultural issues associated with African-American communities, but say you don't care just because they, um, they exist because of racism anyway. This is ridiculous. Um, so let's start with collective responsibility. Um, are you... Well, for a start, I don't really believe in moral responsibility anyway. I'm kind of like a brute force, moral, consequentialist, free will isn't really a thing type of thinker when it comes to meta-ethics, but that's a rabbit hole we needn't go down. Look, let's just state facts, you know. Is it true that... um most white people today have not done, you know, overtly racist or bigoted things. Sure, you know, that they weren't slaveholders or anything like that. Is it also the case that most white people, some have, by the way, some white people today have still done pretty awful racist things, but, like, in general, right, is it also the case that we have benefited from being white? I think that's undeniable, and that's a bigger case than I'm gonna make here, but like, you know, is there still racism? Yes. Um, is it still an advantage to be white? Yes. Like, I, I you know, I, I would just merely refer you back to, like, many of the episodes I've done on this to sort of substantiate that claim. And so then it gets to, like, how do we make normative sense of that? And just to be clear, I've got a pretty long track record of saying publicly, I don't think the correct response to that on the part of white people is guilt. 
I've, I've been very clear on that, actually. Um, I mean, if you happen to feel guilty, fine. Especially maybe you discover you have a family fortune that came from the days of slavery or something, then perhaps you should feel guilty and be under some personal responsibility there. But even, you know, like, no, I don't think when people, are, when white people are like, oh my god, I feel so bad, I did did did, let me confess my sins, let me, like, abase myself and my white privilege. Um, uh, Mandisa Thomas, president of Black Nonbelievers, who I like a lot, called it White Tears, and she said it in a similar sort of vein to which one might say Crocodile Tears. It's often a substitute for action, and if nothing else, guilt is kind of like a paralyzing emotion. I don't think it really does anything for you. And it also makes the emotional heart of the story about how white people feel about it, which I don't... that doesn't seem like the most sensible way of thinking about this. I don't care how white people feel about this, right? So I've got a pretty long history of saying the fact that white people are advantaged in a myriad of ways shouldn't, the reaction shouldn't be guilt. Should it be complete indifference, though? Like, I think there's surely, um, a bit of a middle ground here. Now, you can say, in a perfect world, it should be completely colorblind, and, like, our normative reactions shouldn't track race at all, and that's fine, but we're not in that world. So, you know, how, what's normative in a world that is significantly structured by racial discrimination? What should our reaction to that be? be, both on a personal and a moral level. Now, I've already granted that I don't think um, guilt is the right reaction, but does that, pos does that mean then that no reaction is the right reaction? I don't think so. I think we do need to have some sort of moral reaction. And I think instead of... Um, Think, I mean, and, and this just goes to the thing of, like, do we think we have duties of care and assistance towards other people? I do, right? I'm not, like, a pure libertarian or anything. I do think that there are moral duties of assistance. Forget race, just in general, do we have duties to try and assist the, the, the least well-off? Yes, I think we do, right? So I would put it much more in terms of duties of assistance than in terms of, like, blame and moral responsibility. And then, if we do have those duties of assistance, then, you know, are, are they purely colorblind, given that the reality we live in is so heavily structured by the legacy of, and in some respects, continuing oppression. Um, surely at least a little bit, right? And that is actually how I see reparations practically, is as one part of a broader push to make the United States more egalitarian, because a big part of why a lot of people are um, not well off in the United States is historic and, to some degree, contemporary oppression, and a big reason why the United States hasn't been able to enact the reforms to tackle extreme poverty in the same way as other advanced nations have is be also is because of the that same legacy and because of contemporary racism. So the causality runs both ways, right?
So any part of trying to make the United States more egalitarian, which is, I think, a project which has very, very strong moral and philosophical arguments underpinning it, will necessarily have to address racism in some way. So I, that, that's how I see that. And I think, final point on this, there's like this broader issue, right, of when, when people sort of, when people feel like I'm telling them they're collectively responsible for the crimes of their ancestors, which isn't what I'm saying, um, I think they picture it as there's only two options. Either, on the one hand, we're all complete individuals, we're all atomized units, groups don't matter at all, or on the other, Groups are the only thing that matters. Um, well, no, it's it, it's a middle ground between the two, and liberalism at its wisest is a sort of understanding that those two impulses need to be reconciled. Liberalism isn't and shouldn't be the simple assertion of the individual over the group or the group over the individual. It's how you balance that out. So yes, we're individuals, Yes, that matters, but we all have many different identities that affect us in complicated and cross-cutting ways, you know? You can retain a strongly individualist perspective, but note that the type of person you are and the you know, more objective opportunities and resources that you have are shaped by a society in which groups matter. Right, there's no contradiction there. So moving on to the second part of that paragraph, you bring up cultural issues associated with African-American communities, and you say you don't care about those because they exist because of racism anyway. This is ridiculous. Um, I, I realised I covered this argument quite fast in the Ryan Enos interview. I go into it in much more depth with... Uh, Glenn Lowry, but no, I'm not... So, just background for people coming into this. There is a legitimate debate between how far the state of uh, black, you know, so say just take the black wealth gap, right? How far is that due to oppression, or how far is it due to culture? So, for instance, if like culturally, on average or on aggregate, um, black people don't, black families don't spend as much time on homework with their kids or something, say, right? Like, how far does that sort of cultural difference? play into black people not getting degrees and hence having low earning potential, something like that, right? Um, my view on this has, has always been that I, I think culture's a real thing, and I think it matters, and I'm sure it probably does have some role, both in explaining some of the ways in which black people are disadvantaged, and in which um, black people have excelled the extraordinary cultural creativity of black people in the United States is, I think, something that we don't talk enough about. This is always about what's wrong with black people or black communities instead of what's right with them. But I've never denied, as some leftists do, and I don't, I, I've never had this fear of talking about culture that some people on the left do. I don't. Um, obviously, it's a real thing. Um, and obviously there are cultural differences between different groups that affect behaviour, that's all fine. I'm sort of sceptical about how salient it is as an explanatory variable. So if you look at the $100,000 wealth gap, you know, how much of that is down to, like, cultural differences? Everyone's really scared to put a number on it, but a lot of the sort of conservatives 
think seem to think it's upwards of 50%. That seems really wild to me. And that's a bigger empirical argument than I have time to make now. But the, 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 the majority of that could be explained by culture. That seems crazy to me. If you told me it was like 10%, then, you know, sure. Like, I, I mean, I don't know, but like, on the face of it, that doesn't seem implausible. The point, though, that... I was saying, wasn't that it can all be explained by racism necessarily, I'm allowing that at least in theory culture can, can play a role. The point I'm making is cultures don't arise in a vacuum, and many of the cultural behaviours learnt by some black communities, I always think it's more useful to talk about black communities, plural, rather than the black community, um, may be the result of historic oppression, right? So I'll just quote um, Orlando Patterson on this. Um, this is a paraphrase from the Ordeal of Integration that I have memorised. He says, quote, Black people are certainly no worse than white people, but they're not supermen. And only supermen could endure centuries of ritualistic domination, dehumanisation and violence without bearing some scars. Scars that may well be maladaptive in a more equal opportunities environment, but we must never forget the historical origin of those scars and where the ultimate moral culpability for them lays. End quote. So I'm saying that yes, culture might play a role, but if there are cultural differences that are working to black disadvantage. Those cultural differences came from somewhere and they came from history, and history is racist as shit. So, I do think there is, and I'll be careful around the language of moral responsibility, because I know it sets people off, but I do think there is a duty of assistance on the part of America, which is dominated by white people. There is a duty of assistance to people who are disadvantaged whether the mechanism, irrespective of whether the mechanism that created and perpetuated that disadvantage is overt discrimination, subtle discrimination, or even cultural differences that had their origin in discrimination. So I hope that makes sense. My point isn't that, that culture doesn't exist. I am sceptical how big a role it plays, but I don't think that... The, the the practical argument would close the moral one, if that makes sense. I don't think the mechanism through which disadvantage is perpetuated necessarily, um, if the mechanism ultimately has its roots in oppression, I think the exact chain of causality it took from oppression to get to disadvantage is practically important. It's important to understand it so that we can remedy it, but I don't necessarily think changes the moral argument. So that's that's my point there. I'm not saying that um that it does the the, the the um that I don't care as the, the, the email puts it. Um so let's let's go on with the email um on this is quite a long one, I'm not gonna get through all of it. On the one hand, I'm just reading from it here, on the one hand, segregation ended 50 years ago. African Americans have had opportunities to succeed their ancestors haven't had, and they still haven't caught up. When segregation ended, people were predicting 20 to 40 years they would be 
par economically with whites. Why didn't that happen? Um, I think that's a really easy question. I think, first of all, I don't know who predicted it would be 20 years from the end of segregation, but that that was wildly optimistic. Um, firstly, African Americans have not had, over the past 50 years, the same opportunities to succeed as whites. Even saying there was no overt discrimination, which of course there was, um, like, you know, if you, on average, go to schools that are like, less well-funded or, you know, don't offer such a, a a good education. I don't mean to stereotype that. I'm sure there's fantastic schools that are majority black. But, you know, if you have less resources going in, you're going to end up with less good outcomes coming out, right? And the point is, like, I think this idea of black people catching up is so deeply misguided. Think about it this way. Um, because white people are also making economic advances at the same time. So think about it this way. Say you have um, a race in which um, someone starts 50 metres behind someone else. How long will it take them to catch up? Well, if they both run at the same speed, they're always going to be 50 metres behind. So if white households gain so much wealth per year or you know any whatever whatever metric of success you want right um if they gain two percent of x good a year and black people gain two percent of x good a year or two units or you know whatever of the good each year black people are always going to be that initial distance behind right so either black people have to outdo white people in order to catch up, or some sort of intervention has to happen in order to give them a boost, right? Which is sort of like, the, the, again, just goes back to the idea of, of, of reparations. So I think where the questioner wants me to go with that is they didn't catch up because, like, they chose to indulge in cultural behaviours that held them back, but, like, the fact that the gap has closed at all is to the resounding credit of black people, and we shouldn't expect it to close just by itself. That's not... that doesn't make sense. Um, so continuing on. This denies agency to black people. It's like saying because a person was abused as a small child but not a teenager, they do not need to look for a job and just attribute their problems to their abuser till their death. If you're going to prosper in life, it has to be by your own initiative. If many members of a community don't show that initiative, it's going to experience detriment because of that. Now, I understand the economy doesn't care about poor people and it would be in order to implement some reforms to fix this. But you cannot claim that a person who doesn't try in life has not succeeded because they were oppressed. Um, but it's it's both, right? Like, effort and hard work make a difference, as do social conditions. I don't I don't I don't really get this actually, like yes people who work hard tend to succeed more, but, like, they might not succeed as much as someone who faces, you know, has opportunities that they don't, or doesn't face barriers that they do. 
Um, and I'm not sure, like, I've argued for, or anyone has argued for, like, this conclusion. Um, the idea that, like, um, we don't think black people should, like, have to work, or, like, um, that, I, I don't, I don't get it, look, look, I'm saying, I've given some arguments for reparations, I've given more throughout the podcast, something like that, something positive to be done, right? But, I, I'm not, I don't, to acknowledge that our chances in life are not purely dependent on our own intelligence and ingenuity, that they are to some extent conditioned by the world, is not to de deny agency, is just to say that that agency isn't total and godlike, which is just an obvious empirical fact about the way human beings exist in society. Like, never mind race, right? Um, it would be very difficult for me to do all sorts of things because of societal and structural things over which I have no control. Like, acknowledging that and talking honestly and asking how we make normative sense of the world, given that, it's not just race. I think people think, like, when it comes to race, we're bringing in a whole load of stuff that we don't do for anything else, but we're really not. It's the same thing. Like, yes, individuals have agency, Yes, that matters, but our lives are also conditioned and informed by all sorts of stuff that we don't have agency over. That's true for race, it's true for all sorts of things. And like, the, the, the question is, like, just how do we use our agency most effectively within that space? That's all we're talking about. So I don't, I don't really get that bit. Um, moving on, um, you say, I think here, actually, you're... Well, let me just read the passage. You say you don't care about education because their own schools failed them and education yields little results. I won't try to disprove this at length, but I will say that progressives tend to very selectively cite data that supports their claims. Ezra Klein recited Black Names study from memory once, but tons of sociologists have criticised the methodologies and conclusions of that study. You should look into the evidence contrary to what you've said. Um, so I think that's actually something Brian Enos said, um, and I'll let him speak for himself. Um, about the point that there might be methodological... The Black Name study, by the way, is if you have a black name on a resume, you get less responses from an employer. Um, I think people would expect me to really, like, dig in on that one, I'm sure. Like, there's nothing about my worldview that if it turns out that that particular stat isn't well, you know, attested, or that there's methodological problems with it, sure, like, I'm fine, you know. Um, look, the evidence says what it says, right? You know, facts are facts. If there's evidence that, like, having a black name um, hurts your employment prospects, that's what the evidence is. If there's not then that's actually a good thing, right? So, like, I've no problem with, like, a particular study. Um, and, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll even grant the point that, um, um, 
liberals cherry-pick for examples of racism. I'm sure that's true. Um, I would just merely point out that conservatives cherry-pick for examples of non-racism. So, like, in any individual instance of, you know, where it might be that discrimination is operative, um, you could have an argument for or an argument against, and it might be that actually the, the evidence is that, by and large, there isn't racism, or that it's, you know, not at a significant degree that we can really say is holding people back. That's all fine, and I've no, I, I don't, I haven't dug into the sociology of this, I don't know the sort of disputes that they're, they're referencing, but, like, I think people would, you know, the the author of the, this email is sort of expecting me to really, like, take an ideologically hard line and say, no, I know this to be true because of my liberal convictions. No, no, that's, look, facts are facts, right? And there there are some cases where racism has been alleged, and the data really doesn't bear that out. That, that has definitely happened. I think more commonly it is the other way around. And I think if you look at the sum total of all of the different studies and all of the ways that people have researched, you know, do are people sort of unjustly held back because of their race? I think, you know, the, 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 the punchline has to be, yes, they are. Not as much as they were, and maybe not in every single instance that's been alleged by liberals, but, uh, you know, I, I think I don't credibly see the case that we're living in a complete equal opportunity society with respect to case. I don't. When you look at the weight of evidence, you, you can absolutely, we can and we should go into whether any individual piece stands up, but taken as a whole, right, Surely that's there. But yeah, sure, like, if you want to pick apart particular studies, yeah, that's what social science is for. So I'm actually not, like, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't think that argument goes where you think it's going to go. I can quite happily say a particular study might be wrong. I've no idea, but it might be, okay? There's then quite a long bit, which I won't read all of, saying essentially... Um, and this is actually taking the debate on my terms about, like, what is um, the, the sort of um, moral responsibility for care... And they separate out, like, ordinary care and extraordinary care. Like, how far really do we need to go to help black people? Again, I'm actually fine with the phrasing of that. I don't think we have an extraordinary moral responsibility towards black people. Like, again, what I'm arguing for, which seems outlandish to some, is that we as a country put the same resources towards um, addressing the contemporary effects of historical injustice that we just recently put towards lowering the top corporate tax rate. That's it. You know? Like, like I think this, this isn't as radical as it seems, right? Um, and again, like, truly radical stuff whereby, like, all white people have to be divested of all property. I, you know, I don't know that I would support that, right? I probably wouldn't. But, like... So that that's just my response to that bit about the idea that I'm arguing for, like, an extraordinary amount of care that would um, significantly burden white people. That's not what I'm saying. At all. You know, the, the furthest I'd go is to say maybe affluent white people, affluent people in general for that matter, actually, should pay marginally higher taxes to support programs that might disproportionately benefit uh, black Americans. That's about the furthest I'd go with that argument. There's nothing about what I'm saying that's designed to be punitive 
on white people. And I don't think I've ever said anything to that effect. Um, but that, that seems to be the takeaway that people take from it. So this bit's interesting, actually. Um, quoting again from the email, Suppose we live in China in the future. China transitioned into a standard social democracy, and China had certain historically oppressed minorities like the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, and certain forms of oppression they experienced were done away with. They're now free to pursue their own happiness as they like, but in the 50 years they still haven't caught up with uh, the Han Chinese and suffer from tons of social issues. Many of them choose not to get a secondary education, and many don't have stable families. We ask them, why don't they fix this? And they say, well, it's because we've been historically marginalised, and you might, it's because of these bad personal choices we made, but that's just because of racism anyway, so you need to give us each $10,000 in cash to fix it. Righteously so. The Han Chinese could turn up their noses at the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and say, that's my not my responsibility, I don't care. They don't have a responsibility to take on the tremendous burden to help a tribe such as they. Even if it's due to discrimination and racism, they don't have such a responsibility in the first place. Such an extraordinary expenditure is beyond the realms of any kind of obligation, end quote. Um, so again, just the, 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 the phrasing as like what we're calling for as extraordinary, I'm not sure is. Um, and if it's something... And, and again, something's better than nothing, right? We're never going to, like, fully atone for racism. And I think conservatives quite rightly sort of mock the phrase coming to terms with our racism, like that's ever going to happen. But it's better to do something than nothing. But I found this counterexample really interesting, because my moral intuitions just diverge from yours completely, um, without knowing much necessarily about Chinese politics, much less the politics of this hypothetical China you've posited, um, my um, intuition would be that the Chinese probably should pay reparations to the Tibetans. I mean, the, what, what China has done in Tibet is ghastly, and they'll never fully atone for it, um, but if some sort of attempt restitution was made, that would seem to be a good thing to me. I don't really get the argument. Like, yeah, cool. Like, I think there's a thought that, you know, you know it would be nice if, you know, black people caught up to white people, or in this case, the, the Tibetans closed the gap with the Han Chinese. But it can only happen if it's done through, you know, them participating in contemporary capitalist labour markets and closing the gap through, like, this equal opportunities schema. And that it's somehow impermissible if we just close the gap by just fucking closing the gap, that would somehow be really bad. Whereas for me, I'm like, what matters is the outcome, right? What matters is that people aren't poor, or they aren't oppressed, and that they're free to live and choose their own lives, um, which many black people increasingly are, many aren't, and some white people aren't, right? Like, I don't I don't care about the mechanism.
right? Like, if one mechanism gets you there faster, or one mechanism will be more stable and more permanent, but it's this idea that we can only help people who help themselves, where help themselves means they have to be born with certain attributes and intelligence and the capacity to learn certain skills, and then they have to demonstrate those through a certain set of institutions, um, so what? I'm just, like, such a moral consequentialist about this, and I don't really get it. Like, why does it matter how we help people and what the mechanism is? If, look, look, if the best way to lift people out of poverty and to alleviate oppression is to just let the free market rip, then have at it right? And I think, like, that has to be part of the solution. I'm not proposing we do away with market transactions entirely, but, like, I think it is clear that it doesn't have, that's not the only solution, and that there's other things we can do, right? The final point here is I think when it comes to people who, how do I put this delicately, who are suspicious of left-wing arguments about racism, is they feel like white people in America are being uniquely blamed for something that everybody has done. Here's, here's, I think, how they feel. They feel every country in the world has oppressed people and done terrible things, yet everyone else is just allowed to get on with it. We have to be continually beaten over the head with our historical crimes, even though we, contemporary, had nothing to do with them, and everyone else just gets to carry on, and it's really unfair. I think that's, I think that's how people feel. So let me just answer this directly. No, 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 no. Like, like, yeah, yeah, I think probably China should pay reparations to the Tibetans. Um, America, in some respects, is exceptional, both in the scale of its achievements and the genuine freedom and prosperity that it's had, and also in the nature of the evils that it's committed, but it's playing in the same ballpark everybody else is, right? And if we were to sort of try and, like, just put this in context... You know, the transatlantic slave trade, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the figure I have in my head was about 12 million persons were transported. Probably, you know, a, at least an equivalent number were born and lived in slavery. You know, millions of people died because of it. Um, you can sort of um, maybe try and pass the sort of morally consequentialist difference between sort of working someone to death as a slave versus, like, killing them in a concentration camp. There might be some sort of moral nuances of the distinction. But, like, in terms of, like, the total evil we're talking about as a whole, you're about in Holocaust territory, right? I mean, you could maybe make a case that it's a bit more or a bit less, but you're sort of, like, that's your sort of ballpark. And again, America was not unique in participating in the slave trade. Some aspects of how America practiced slavery were shared with other countries. Some were unique to America. Um, other countries, you know, the transatlantic slave trade was not unique in history as um, a slave trade of that scale. People always point out that there was um, a pretty large... Um, slave trading uh, set up in the North African states, that's true. Um, there was, um, in the ancient world, um, in India, lots of places have had large-scale slave systems, and no one, I think, does the full history of this better than um, 
Orlando Patterson. Um, some of it, like, we're not going to do reparations for Roman slavery, right? But, like, yeah, um, I'm not, like, super up on these debates. But, yeah, I think there probably are. Um, definitely are, in fact. Like, we want to think about that legacy when we think about what's correct politically and normatively in you know, Jamaica or Brazil or something like that, right? I don't I don't put this uniquely on white Americans. And if you just go with, like, really messed up stuff that human beings have d- done to each other, you know, even in the last couple of hundred years, you, you know, I think this goes up there with some of the really bad stuff, but it's not absolutely unique, right? If you're sort of looking at, like, body count. So no, I think there's this fear that, like white Americans are uniquely being beaten over the head with it. No, this is just the one that happens to sort of involve you personally. That's it. That's all it is, right? You know, all of us, you're quite right, all of us come to a certain place from history, and history is evil, right? Like, history has some really nasty stuff in it, and... You know, then we just sort of have to ask, does it make a difference? And it it does, it all does, even Roman history does. Like, that still conditions and affects our world. Um, and these, these, like, our world is, our world is built by history. And, like, you know, I don't think our moral obligations to one another exist purely in a vacuum, in a way that are not informed by that at all. Of course they're informed by it. They're not reducible to it. And our individuality and our autonomy and our agency and people, things that people feel are being threatened when we talk about how we're affected by history, no, those still exist, right? They're all still there. You're not losing anything, right? I don't, like, I think you think things are coming from this argument that aren't. Right? The the idea that, that black people, if we do any sort of positive action towards them, will just have all responsibility absolved of them and live as a permanent, like, dependent class. Nobody's saying that. Right? I think you think that white people are uniquely being held account for historical crimes in a way that no other group of people in the world is. I, I mean, no, I like, in, in, to the extent that maybe some radical social justice type is saying that, I'm not. I think you think I'm saying that everything is reducible to group identity, and that the only thing that matters when judging someone is their race. There's some really, like, I think, well-intentioned but completely misguided social justice types who say that. I'm not. I'm just saying that, that race isn't irrelevant that it matters. That's not to say that it's the be-all and end-all and everything reduces to it. And finally, I think you think I'm saying you're a bad person and you should feel guilty. Listen, we're all flawed. We all have unearned advantages, some more than others. But I actually don't care if you feel guilty about it or not. I actually don't think that's useful, and I think sometimes it can be counterproductive. I would want to impress on you that I do think we have moral responsibilities towards each other. And I've made that case extensively on my podcast. And that those 
moral responsibilities, you know, we are going to have to think about them in light of how the world is, and how the world is is built by history. And you cannot understand any aspect of American politics or American society without understanding the role that race and racism has played in it. So that those moral responsibilities in the world that we live in might not be fully colorblind should not be a crazy or scary conclusion, right? That's it. Mm-hmm.